0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures
1: right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts.
2: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. A co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker.
3: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. The Oscars and the other award shows remain must-watch television for at least many of us. We watch, first of all, waiting for something to go horribly wrong, like the Moonlight Envelope episode or Will Smith's infamous slap that was heard around the world. And we watch for the pleasure of arguing about the nominations and shouting at the TV when the Academy picks the wrong films again and again.
0: Green Book, Crash, Ordinary People, and on and on. There's, of course, this vast cottage industry of strategists and PR people. And Hollywood has its own reasons for voting for certain things, whether they want to back a hit or, a, you know, an actress who's been at it forever and it's her turn or, or what have you, you know. Michael Shulman is a staff writer at The New
3: Yorker, and his new book is called Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, sweat and tears
0: it's 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 unreliable as a pure measure of you know cinematic worth but i would argue that the oscars have a lot of value for another reason which is that they are sort of a decoder ring for (laughs) cultural conflict and where the industry is headed like they're a way to understand where pop culture is now, but you got interested in the Oscars way way before you could have figured out that it was a cultural Dakota ring. You were as a kid obsessed with the Oscars. Why was that? Well, I remember pretty clearly the first time I watched the Oscars. I was 12. It was 1993. So this was the era of the incredible Billy Crystal opening medleys. <laughs> I'm sure you recall. I do.
2: Not nominated. So back, not nominated.
0: One, two. What I remember so clearly is that I was way too young to have seen any of the nominated movies, like *Unforgiven* or *The Crying Game*. But that didn't stop me from thinking this medley was the most ingenious comedy I'd ever seen. <laughs> and in a way, like looking back, I think I did understand that it was a kind of, that the Oscars were a kind of decodering. I mean, all of. All of Billy Crystal's in-jokes about, you know, why didn't the director of A Few Good Men get nominated? And, you know, here's Clint Eastwood in the front row. You know, I, I think part of me could tell that the Oscars were a way of understanding this world of actors and celebrities and movies and Hollywood. Michael, you write about Louis B. Mayer. Mr.
3: Mayer is the gentleman who originally conceived the idea of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences.
4: Mr. Mayer is also the vice president of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer.
3: And you write that the Oscars were originally a kind of, I don't know, an afterthought. Why was the
0: Academy created in the first place? And what was the original purpose of the awards? Well, the Academy's creation had really nothing to do with awards. So this was 1927, and it was Louis Le Mayer's idea. He he sort of suggested it over, over cards and drinks one night as, at his beach house. And it was founded soon after by 36 founding members who represented a cross-section of the most powerful people in Hollywood at the time, in the, in the silent era. And they saw themselves as a kind of league of nations that would promote harmony and, you know, promote motion pictures throughout the world. But if you look a little bit closer, Hollywood was having a really terrible image problem. Earlier in the 20s, there were all these salacious scandals like the trial of Fatty Arbuckle, who was arrested for rape and murder, and the mysterious death of the director, William Desmond Taylor, which is still unsolved and people are trying to figure it out. The same sort of church groups that had pushed for prohibition very successfully were now targeting the movies as this this, chief corrupting influence of America. And there was a real threat. There was a threat of censorship laws, for instance. And part of what this organization did was rebrand Hollywood, not as a cesspool, but as an academy. Like, what could be more lofty and respectable? In our own era, one of the chief criticisms of the Oscars, of course, has been a lack of diversity.
3: So recently, we've seen more nominees of color. That's true. We saw Moonlight win the
0: Oscar. How have the Oscars changed and how not? Right. I mean, that was a huge pivot that year. And when I look back on it as a whole, What was so interesting was to see how this conversation about diversity and inclusion at the Academy Awards and the kind of backlash that it provoked, Mm. it was happening at the same time as the 2016 election and sort of mirrored it in a weird way because, of course, Donald Trump's candidacy was all about, you know, grievance and uh, running against the idea of political correctness.
4: And the winner is a movie from South Korea. What the hell was that all about? We got enough problems with South Korea, with trade. On top of it, they give him the best movie of the year. Was it good? I don't know. You know, I'm looking for, like, where. let's get Gone with the Wind. Can we get, like, Gone with the Wind back, please?
0: It, it was really interesting to go back and even trace that year that ended with Moonlight's win and to see how the politics in Hollywood were sort of a, a funhouse mirror of the politics throughout the country. The Academy has done a tremendous job of overhauling its membership, inviting a lot more people in, including people from around the world. It's a much more international uh, membership now. And I think you start to see that reflected in wins like Parasite a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I think the Academy really has made an effort, a very successful effort to structurally change change itself. And of course, there are plenty of people who think that's terrible. And, you know, they're, they're lowering their standards and this and that. But who, think, um, but who thinks it, who is, thinks it's terrible? And who's being kind of cast aside? Oh, I mean, there are plenty of people, that, you know, for the piece I wrote in, in uh, 2017, I talked to Tab Hunter, the kind of the aging, uh, you know, blonde hunk from the 50s. And he had come out with this Incredibly angry statement about how the academy was betraying its white members, who were the backbone of the industry. Ouch. You know, I mean, oh, yeah, this, yeah. this exists; it's out there. Yeah. It's in a way this, a very similar uh, debate as as you know, what we how we talk about affirmative action. There are people who feel like, oh, you sh- you should be race blind or whatever, but of course, that ignores the structural advantages that have existed for white men in the Oscars for its first, you know, 80, 90 years. Well, that and brings, the, the, and it
3: brings me to the obvious question then. If, if, in fact, the Oscars and its structure and the Academy have managed to reform themselves at least somewhat, how has that been reflected overall in the industry? The last two winners of the Best Director Oscar have been women. But are we seeing that branch out into the industry more generally? Are we seeing a lot more women... Able to direct films and get budgets and 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 all the rest, for example,
0: not especially. I mean, I think I've I've seen some statistics lately that have said you know it's still very stagnant in terms of women directing, people of color directing. We still haven't had a black best director winner. Incredibly, Uh, we haven't had a a black best actress winner since Halle Berry in two thousand two. We might this year. We might have a woman of color winning with Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere at Once. We'll see. But you know what's tricky is that Hollywood is very good at optics, but they're not always as good at actual no it, it sounds it
3: sounds like it's a it's a kind of glossy form of of tokenism and in it in, 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 in itself a kind of racist thing when you when the really the important thing is representation in the ability to make movies, which requires budgets and access and all the rest prizes are relatively yeah. easy
0: and of course the the Oscars are sort of the end point of that process as many people argued at the time this was part of that debate over Oscars so white mm-hmm. you know why why should the Oscars bear the brunt of a a problem in the industry and what movies are being made I think what's interesting and admirable is that the Academy has really Gone proactive. They they released these set of requirements for eligibility for Best Picture that you have to meet certain certain criteria for inclusion in different departments of uh, of the film. People have said that oh, that even that even that doesn't go far enough, or it's sort of you know if you have like a all women publicity team, you're sort of good to go and you don't actually need to change anything. Um, but I th- you know I think it's been really interesting to watch the Academy change with the times. Michael, Harvey Weinstein, who's obviously in prison now for rape,
3: was known for having transformed the way people campaign for Oscars. Can you talk about how he did this, how he shaped the, the winning and the campaigning and the winning of Oscars and whether that's
0: persisted after his time? Yes, this is what Harvey Weinstein used to be notorious for. (laughs) Very ugly Oscar campaigning, which has been obviously eclipsed by what he's now notorious for, rightly so. One of the chapters that I always knew I wanted to do in the book was the 1999 Best Picture race between Saving Private Ryan, the Spielberg movie, and Shakespeare in Love, which was a Miramax film. So that was Harvey Weinstein's movie. And this is remembered as one of the ugliest, best-picture fights in Oscar history. You know, Weinstein had spent that entire decade honing this this playbook. You know, people used to call it the Weinstein playbook, which w- had to do with, you know, flooding the trade magazines with ads, you know, sort of pulling off stunts to sort of get things noticed.
1: You know, I'm, I'm kind of fed up with Harvey's behavior. <coughs> Every night, you know, Harvey comes by,
0: can you talk about
2: the film? <laughs> That's in the movie, huh? Can you? Will it kill you
1: to talk about the movie? And, you know, eight or nine years of that, it's amusing. But now I'm just...
0: <laughs> he amassed power and influence throughout the 90s, and it kind of culminated in this race between Shakespeare in Love and Saving Private Ryan. And part of it was really like an arms race, you know? As soon as the, the DreamWorks Spielberg people realized, oh, my gosh, this, you know, they, they sort of thought they had it in the bag. It had been a gigantic worldwide hit, and it was Spielberg, you know, in the same way we're seeing this year with The Fablements, it was like one of those Spielberg movies that seemed like a real moment for him. It cut to that December when Shakespeare in Love comes out, and suddenly this race is more interesting, and the people at DreamWorks found themselves essentially under siege in this Oscar race. Now, I went back and talked to a lot of people from both sides of this contest and they both talk about it like it was the Spanish Civil War. I mean, everyone is still so traumatized. (laughs) And the Oscar goes to Shakespeare in Love. But what happened in the end was that a lot of people in Hollywood were absolutely aghast because they felt that Harvey had cheated by campaigning too hard. And the next year, all of the other studios, especially DreamWorks, felt that they had to copy and double the Weinstein playbook. So, so it's like the had, Cold War. Is absolutely. <laughs> no, so <I'm's> <laughs> DreamWorks the next year had American Beauty, and they outspent every other studio, and they won. And every studio had sort of hired maybe a consultant, for, you know, play some some ads, but it suddenly went from being a sort of gentleman's game to being blood sport. And the, the budgets ballooned, the, you know, the never-ending kind of cocktails and Q&As that we see now, you know, it became Oscar season in a different way.
3: Michael, let's talk about Best Picture this year. Mm -hmm. When you look at the Academy and and its tendencies,
0: go out on a limb, keep walking, and make a prediction. (laughs) Well, I think the Fablemans is still sort of in that frontrunner's slot, you know? I mean, Spielberg is Pretty much beloved, and this is his. This is him telling us who he is after all these years. He's now sort of showing us into his soul. But I think what's really interesting about this year is that it's been a really difficult year for Hollywood, especially these sort of adult dramas at the box office. You know, movies like Tar and even The Fablements have just not done well. And so my sense is that a lot of people in Hollywood are kind of freaked out. You know, this, there are many reasons for this, uh, Most, mostly the rise of streaming, you know, and the pandemic. People are very used to staying at home, waiting for something to show up on Netflix or HBO Max. And the only thing they're really going out to the movies to see are these big temple franchise blockbusters like Avatar and Top Gun and Black Panther. So I'm interested to see whether the Academy sort of runs to embrace the big successes Mm. to sort of prove that it's still a viable industry or whether it sort of closes rank against these little uh, serious movies that have always traditionally been the purpose of the Oscars to sort of raise up the, you know, the quality over, you know, art over commerce. But my bold prediction, and, you know, if I'm wrong, just forget I ever said this, obviously. No, I'm holding
3: you to it, absolutely.
0: There's one movie that has been the exception to the rule, the unicorn, which is everything, everywhere, all at once, which is this A24 movie that is not a franchise. It's completely original. It's super weird. It's really delightful, but it also is this spectacle, and it's made over $100 million around the world. So I think that my prediction is that I don't know if it'll win, but I think everything, every wall at once will have a good night because in a way, it's Hollywood's way of pretending that some of those <laughs> structure structural problems don't exist. That's an interesting
3: analysis. Now, Michael, finally, instead of going out on a song, do you have a favorite acceptance speech that we should end on?
0: No. Oh, how do I even choose? Um, I think I'm going to have to go with Meryl Streep, who won for the Iron Lady in 2012 and I mean, I just think she is uh, not only the the greatest living actress, but the greatest living acceptance speech giver. Um, And that was the year she came up and said... Thank you, thank you. (laughs) When they called my name, I had this feeling
4: I could hear half of America going, Oh, no. Oh, come on, why her again? You know? But whatever.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks, David.
3: Michael Shulman's new book is called Oscar Wars, and you can read him on entertainment and culture at newyorker.com. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around.
2: WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial.
1: The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do, and how can we help you keep doing it? Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com.
0: I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, Protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. It's how Dana Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at danafarber.org/slash/everywhere.
3: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick.
4: Hello, We're going to do. Hello. You're a new face. I'm Jeffrey.
3: A little while ago, our producer Jeffrey Masters went over to spend some time with the Broadway composer Charles Strauss. Strauss wrote Broadway shows like Applause and Bye Bye Birdie.
4: Gray skies are gonna clear up Put on a happy face Brush off the clouds and cheer up Put on a
1: happy face
3: He wrote the score for Bonnie and Clyde and music for lots of television, but Charles Strauss is best known for the musical Annie.
1: The sun'll come out Tomorrow, bet
3: your bottom Even now, hundreds and hundreds of productions of Annie take place every year. It's like the gateway drug for Broadway for generations of kids.
0: Sleeping? You sleeping? What? what you Charles! Sleeping hey! He How was not
2: sleeping, but he is 94 years old, so if he was, I don't think I can really blame him. I'm going to record if that's okay?
4: Whoa, 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 whoa.
2: <laughs> well... well I'm going to suck my stomach in. The scene in his apartment, you know, it was a lot. It was chaotic. He's currently going through his archives, just the boxes and boxes completely covering the floors. And he's doing this in order to donate them to the Library of Congress.
4: Yeah, I guess the the Library of Congress, which uh, collects life itself, yeah, they asked me. I mean, I wouldn't ask to do this. But in the, in this box, here, here tell me,
2: we found... Oh, my God, it's so heavy. Um, but, but there's this the record from All in the
4: Family. I wrote it.
2: Oh, right, the theme song for the show.
4: Norman Lear wanted to have a theme, but he couldn't afford a big orchestra. And I brought up the fact that when I was a kid, we all used to sit around and my mother used to play. And so... That's how I wrote it, but the uh, boy, the tunes Glenn Miller played—songs that made the hit parade—guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days, and you knew where you were. Ah, that, that she made up herself. Girls were girls, and men were men. Mister, we could use a Herbert Hooper again. But the song itself, as did the program, became very, uh, very s- successful.
2: Yeah. It, it, you know, there's this huge framed picture of Jay-Z and, and the framed CD and cassette tape from um, the album that says, yeah. uh, Volume 2, Hard Knock Life. Oh, it says from 1998.
0: Poppin' to driving some of the hottest cars New Yorkers ever seen. For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard. For the dope spot with the smoke block singing the murder scene.
4: You know, well and what was it like working with Jay Z? There he, is. He, he 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 was surrounded by uh bodyguards and, and uh all kinds of uh people. There was finally one point in my life where we we got together and sat and talked.
2: Oh, because he also produced the most recent Annie movie remake uh, from uh, 2014. I,
4: I I do remember uh, I kind of won his heart in a way uh, when I said you got to bring your wife with you. You know, I was I was I was being uh, kind of snotty and uh, and he must have told her that and. Uh, be- Beyonce. Yeah, it was a nice relationship. Yeah, but most of the time he was he was beyond such a small personage as, as me. You know, in one of the boxes, um,
2: where is it? We found a letter from Steven Sondheim, and there's a, there's a funny part to it. Do you, do you mind if I read it? Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is dated July twenty second, two thousand eight, and he says. Congratulations on your memoir that was just published. And, and then he says, quote, I bought a copy yesterday and naturally immediately looked up references to myself. <laughs> and then he supplies two corrections for you in case there are any future reprintings, he says. Was, um, was that kind of thing in
4: character for him? Uh, Stephen and I were friendly enemies. He didn't like me much. I didn't like him less. But, on the other hand uh I respected him a lot. Stephen and I knew each other so long that uh I stood danger of invading his territory, but even that was not uh we went, we came into two different worlds. but we were very old friends he was the uh He was my oldest friend in the theater. Far away, or maybe real nearby.
2: I mean, right now, she, uh, Annie, it, it, it is, is, like, surrounding us, right? There's posters on the walls and pillows, but also in, the, in this box, it's, it's Annie stationery and, and letterheads. Also, there's the Annie cookie jar on the shelf and this Annie piggy bank with, with her big, big song, Tomorrow.
4: When you originally wrote it, did you think that you'd struck gold? That I, I didn't think. I, I thought that was a, a disposable uh, item uh, that we needed, necessary to keep the curtain up or down. But so many songs in musicals go through that um, uh, emotion. You know, there. Uh, if if a, if a guy is a good theater composer, he learns. To kind of think with uh, with two uh, voices, so to speak. One is "I love you, my darling." The other is "I love you, my darling, but keep it going, going this song because we have to bring in the detective soon." Uh, I would say tomorrow falls into that category. I, I needed to. I needed some time. It's usually always that way when you're writing for the theater. The book writer most uh, usually says he needs a song there, or you yourself, rather than here's my symphony to the stars.
2: And, and so you originally thought that that song was disposable, as you said. Now, in, in hindsight, now, like, what do you think it is that makes that song so great? I,
4: I don't know. I mean, I, maybe I do know. Maybe I'm being modest. I do think uh, I'm talented. I, th- I think I write a song, and I wanted to uh, please uh, the audience. I didn't know that it was going to be so big. And so uh, I'm very proud if it made its mark.
2: I think that tomorrow, with it, there's this like beautiful simplicity to it, where you can hear it and then you know almost like sing along with it during each reprise
4: that's what a popular song should do it should sound as though it was always there but it never was until you thought of it and i think uh, tomorrow came to me that way It's um complicated melody, uh, I'm looking at posters on my, uh, and, and a lot of songs I've written that have not been uh, uh, classics like that.
2: I mean, I think that, like, fortunately and unfortunately, when a song gets as big as Tomorrow's gotten and has remained, it gets bigger than you, right? Your name, in many ways, is no longer associated with it. Ha- has that bothered you in your
4: career? Uh, Not if I hear this song, no, not really. I mean, I never uh, got wh- uh, what uh, Lenny himself did, Irving Berlin did. Uh, I, no, I never had that luxury. And here's another Charles Strauss song. No, I never had that kind of reputation. It's a funny thing about composing. It comes from your heart in a way, but... It really comes from no nowhere. It's God given. I I would think that's a a God given gift that I've been fortunate enough to uh, to get. Uh, I'm getting old, you know. Look how I'm walking. I don't play too well now. The sun old come tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar. That tomorrow There'll be sun Just thinking about Tomorrow Clears away The cobwebs And the sorrow Till there's none When I'm stuck with a day that's grave and lonely i just stick out my chin and grin and say whoa ooh, this sun will come out tomorrow so you got to hang on till tomorrow Come what may. Tomorrow, to, to, tomorrow, tomorrow. I love
3: Broadway composer Charles tomorrow. Strauss. He's sending tomorrow. much of his archive to the Library of Congress, A and he spoke with Jeffrey Masters, who's one of our producers. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick, and that's our program for today. Thanks so much for being with us.
4: See you next time. <laughs> I mastered that up pretty well. That's so good. That was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you.
1: The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Bolton Brita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Ngofen Imputabuele, and with guidance from Emily Botine and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Mike Kutchman, and Meher Bhatia. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.